And let me just pray for our time now. Father God, we thank you so much that you're here with us today through your Holy Spirit. Thank you for what you're doing in our world, what you're doing in this church, what you're doing in our lives. And we just pray that you would continue your work now as we come to your word. Please speak to us. Please give us open, expectant hearts about what you uh, want to do both in us and through us. Lord, we really pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, hello everyone. So we've come a long way in our series on Peter. We've been following Peter's life as he follows Jesus over the past, um, I don't know, six, seven weeks now. And I want us to start just by thinking back right to the start of this story, when Peter met Jesus for the first time on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. If you remember, he'd been fishing all night in the boat. He was probably um, tired and sweaty and stinking of fish. Um, And he met Jesus. He didn't have a clue what was lying ahead of him, did he? But he met Jesus, and Jesus said to him, You are Simon, son of John, but you shall be called Peter. Peter means literally Petra, which means rock. You shall be called Peter. And I wonder if you noticed through the story as we're reading about Peter's life and his interaction with Jesus through the Gospels, that this time where, Peter, where Jesus says to Simon, you shall be called Peter, is actually the only time Jesus actually calls Simon Peter. To, to Jesus, Simon is always Simon. Do you notice that? And it's tempting to think, isn't it, when Jesus says to Simon, you shall be called Peter, that he's giving Peter a kind of affectionate nickname, and yet he never uses it. There's obviously something else going on. Because if it was a nickname, when we look at Peter, we realise, actually, it's not a very good nickname at all. (laughs) Simon is not a rock. Rock suggests um, stability, reliability, strength. But that's not the Simon we know, is it? Simon is impulsive and brash. And, as we've seen, it turns out he couldn't be relied upon. Even at the time of Jesus' greatest need, Simon lets him down. He's not strong and reliable. So this isn't a nickname. Jesus wasn't giving Simon a nickname. He was giving him a call. Jesus wasn't describing what Simon was. He is saying who he will be. And now, as we get to the book of Acts, Simon is Peter. That's what everyone knows him as. And we start to see the work that Jesus has been doing in his life, turning Simon into Peter, the rock on which Jesus will build his church. But although Peter is now Peter, we see that the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus who died and risen and has now ascended up to heaven, is still very much at work in Peter's life still chipping away at this rock, making him into this rock he's calling him to be. And what I really want us to see today is the risen Lord Jesus still at work. And I want us to learn from Peter 
what it looks and feels like to follow this risen Lord Jesus. If I was to draw a picture of the disciples as they followed Jesus around Galilee in first century Palestine, I think the picture I'd have on their face, the facial expression I'd give them would be a a gawp. That seemed to characterise them the most. They were wandering around all the time with their mouths wide open, their eyes popping out their heads, their eyebrows sticking off the top of their, their foreheads. All the time, the writers say, the disciples were astonished, they were amazed, they were terrified. It is almost as if they were constantly had their mouths wide open as they followed Jesus. And what I think I want us to see as we look at Acts is that in some ways, nothing's really changed. Luke writes at the beginning of this passage of the church, verse 31, that it was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It was growing in numbers and living in the fear of the Lord. Living in the fear of the Lord. Why fear? I think it's because they didn't know what Jesus was going to do next. Jesus Christ was still very much alive to them. And they were living with this kind of open-ended expectancy about what was going to happen. Because Jesus was alive. He was loose and at large in their world. And therefore anything was possible. And what I want us to get is that this is both an encouragement to us and an example to follow. About what it looks and feels like to live in light of the resurrection. Because Jesus is alive, because he is loose and at large in our world, anything is possible. It's an example and an encouragement to live with a kind of open-ended expectancy about our world, about our society, about our work, about our lack of work, about our family, about our personal life. That Jesus is alive. Believing in Peter's living, free, sovereign, loving Lord means living with the awesome possibility and even the likelihood that bad situations, bad behaviours, bad ways of thinking are going to be turned around by our Lord Jesus, often when we least expect it. One of the most devastating feelings in the Christian life is that of fatalism, that kind of deep, dark, wordless belief that this is the way it is, and this is the way it's always going to be. It's been this way for so long that nothing's going to happen to change it. That's that. This is the way it is. Nothing's going to happen to change it. But the message of the book of Acts, in fact the message of the whole New Testament, is that this is emphatically not true. Jesus Christ is not dead. He's not distant. He's not silent. He's not uninterested. He's alive. And therefore there is nothing inevitable about evil or pain or suffering or even death. The book of Acts is written to encourage us again and again that the Jesus who began to do and teach on earth is alive today and through the Holy Spirit continues to do what he began to do and teach what he began to teach. That's how Luke starts this whole gospel. He says, Dear Theophilus, in my former book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Do you get the implication of that? Began to do and teach. (coughs) Jesus Christ was just getting started. 
So let's have a look at the text. And what I want us to see is what Jesus, who, what Jesus is continuing to do, what he started to do, and what he's continuing to teach, what he started to teach. So first of all, then, let's look at chapter 9 at this remarkable story of Aeneas and Dorcas. So this is verse 32 of chapter 9. As Peter travelled about the country, he went to visit the saints in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, a paralytic who had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and tidy up your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. One of the things I want you to see about these two stories is the quite striking parallels with the healings that Jesus did. And the message that Luke wants to get across is that the Jesus Christ who began to do what he began to do in Judea is continuing to do these things. So here, Peter comes to Ananias. He says, Jesus Christ heals you. It is Jesus who is doing this. Get up, tidy up your mat. That's what Jesus said to the paralytic, wasn't it? Get up, tidy up your mat and go home. And then all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. It was obvious that this was Jesus Christ at work as they turned to the Lord. And again, in the next story, we read of this disciple, Tabitha, who is always doing good and helping the poor. She became sick, she died, her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Again, there's a parallel here. These, this passage is very similar to when Jairus' daughter died in the Gospels and when Lazarus died. Again, Jesus was called for. Peter went with them and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him crying, showing him the robes and the other clothings that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter, like his Lord Jesus, sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Now, I can't ever imagine what it's like to get down on my knees in front of a corpse to pray. To pray for it to rise again. And I suppose there was a time when neither could Peter. But Peter had seen Jesus raise Lazarus, and he had seen Jesus raise Jairus' daughter. And as he finds himself in this room with this corpse, talking to his Lord, presumably realising what it was that Jesus was calling him to do, he would have remembered what Jesus did. He'd have remembered what Jesus said to Jairus' daughter, Talitha, kum, little girl, get up. And so he'd have followed where Jesus was leading and addressed the corpse, saying, like Jesus, Tabitha, get up. In Aramaic, if he'd said it in Aramaic, which he may well have done, only one letter would have changed from what Jesus said. Talitha, kum, Tabitha, kum. This was Jesus at work. And so when Peter presented Tabitha alive, it was Jesus in whom the people put their faith. So the similarities with what Jesus was doing when he was alive and living in Judea are quite striking. But what I want us to notice is the difference between the two as well. Do you remember Jairus' daughter? 
when Jesus was making his way with this um, centurion um, and, and Jairus' servant informs them of the death of his daughter, the servant um, says, why bother the teacher anymore? Why bother the teacher anymore? In other words, what could Jesus possibly do? In Lazarus's case, when he arrives, Lazarus is already dead. And Mary and Martha say, if only you'd been here. If only you'd been here. Now that death has come, nothing could possibly be done. But there's a difference here, isn't there? Because Peter was sent when Dorcas, Tabitha, was already dead. And Peter had never done this kind of thing before. There was no report of Peter ever rising the dead. But but Peter is sent for with a totally new expectation about what is possible. This church in Joppa were open to new possibilities. Because Jesus did it. And Jesus is alive. Their whole view of life and even death had changed. Because Jesus is alive and living, death has lost its sting. It is now merely a sleep from which um, you can wake someone up. And one day, each of us will be woken up by our Lord Jesus as he says, get up. So do we live with this open-ended expectancy about what Jesus might do? It's tricky Because nowhere does Jesus promise that every sick person will be made well and every corpse will be resuscitated. And even when Jesus walked first century Palestine, there must have been thousands who were sick that weren't healed and thousands who died that weren't raised. We know there will be a day when there will be no more sickness and no more death or crying or pain, but that day is not yet. And it was not even when Jesus walked the earth. Contrary to Jewish expectations, Jesus the Messiah came not to consummate that day, to bring in its full fulfilment, but rather to purchase it, to win it, to achieve it. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. I've done it. Sin and evil and death have been dealt the decisive blow. And it's now just a matter of time. And it is still today just a matter of time. It will be. There will be a time where there is no more pain or suffering, sin or death. But it is not yet. But that's not the only thing to say. There is still more to say than that. Because Jesus doesn't just tell us to wait and see. He says, look and taste. And so when he healed and heals today and raised and even raises the dead today, is not unheard of. He gives us a wonderful, exciting, tantalizing taste or an illustration of what it will be like on that day. And so we can live today with a kind of open-ended expectancy about what Jesus Christ might do today. Do we live like that? Or have we become fatalistic and cynical? You know, I think Portswood is starting to get a bit of a reputation as a place where this kind of expectancy actually exists. 
One Saturday a month we have a breakfast club. We're praying for it on Wednesday. And it's for people to come from the streets and have breakfast and share their lives and problems. And there is a prayer box where people can request prayer. And we're told on Wednesday about someone who'd requested three prayers. They heard later that two out of three of them had been answered, that he'd got off the booze, that he'd got a job. Still later, someone else came in saying that he'd heard this was the place where you come to get prayer answered. People at the Breakfast Club talk about how it feels different, how the presence of God is here, how there is an expectancy, a hope that they don't feel in other places. This is our Lord Jesus, alive, loose and at large, doing today what he began to do then. Breaking into people's lives, turning situations around. What Jesus began to do, he continues to do. And we see in this passage what he began to teach, he continues to teach. And we're looking at chapter 10. And we really need this so badly. Because you see this story here in chapter 10 is all about Jesus driving home to Peter the full of implications of what he began to teach. Because Peter hadn't got it yet. The issue in this story with Cornelius is prejudice. And I want us just to acknowledge, before we look at this story, just how much, pre- how much prejudice in our lives, how deep prejudice runs in our veins. There are always people we look down on and say to ourselves, I am glad I am not like them. We were at dinner with some friends on Friday night, and three or four times our friends made disparaging comments about a group of people they call chavs. I'm sure you've heard that word before. Among the middle classes, or the well-educated, that's the socially acceptable prejudice of our day. It used to be peasants or gypsies. Today, amongst my friends, it's chavs. That's the socially acceptable prejudice. And do you know what's going on here? Do you know what underlies prejudice? Underlying every prejudice is self-justification. That's what Jesus teaches us. Do you remember the story he told about the man in the temple who Jesus describes as being confident in his own righteousness and looking down on everyone else? The man who prayed to God, God, I am thank you that you did not make me like other men. You see, whatever you look to for your self-worth, for your value, for your significance, for your righteousness, whether it's your looks, your accent, education, fashion sense, taste in music, abilities, the good stuff you do, automatically we start to look down on those other people that don't have those things because they are so central to who we are, to where we find our value from, that if, they, if, they, if someone doesn't have it, we look down on them. And so you see, if we are prejudiced, we don't get the gospel. That's what's going on here. Because the gospel says our righteousness, our value, our standing before a holy God as human beings comes not from ourselves but from God. And Peter learns in this passage that God shows no favouritism. So 
So this is all about Jesus teaching Peter this. You see, this passage isn't so much about the conversion of Cornelius as it is about the conversion of Peter. So let's have a look at verse 9 at Peter's experience. So about noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He was having his quiet time. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. I don't know about you, that often happens to me during my quiet time. And as the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and someone, something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now this was uh, described as a vision later on. But it's not a very clear vision, is it? It's not very obvious what this vision is all about. It's a little bit bizarre. So it's not so much about the issue of prejudice immediately, is it? It's about the rather more um, obscure issue of Jewish food regulations, of what the Jews were allowed to eat. Now, I'm sure you know that Jews don't eat pork, but that's, that's just one of a whole raft of dietary regulations laid down in the Old Testament. And for first century Jews, these laws witness to their being chosen as a special nation. So the issue here is holy food for holy people. Okay? And I think probably privately, Peter was already starting to question these regulations about what he could and couldn't eat. After all, Jesus didn't really show much respect for these ancient taboos. It's not what goes into a man's mouth that makes him unclean, he said. It's what comes out of his heart. And I think this bit of teaching, just this one sentence was probably lodged in Peter's head, ticking away like a time bomb. That's how Jesus' teaching often works, doesn't it? It just gets into your head. And he's starting to think to himself, well, surely if it's not what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean, does it really matter what I eat? And looking at the people, Peter started spending time with. Peter is staying with a Simon, a tanner. A tanner deals with pigs. Though this guy was a Jew, he was a bad Jew. He touched pig skins all, days long, all day long. But, thought Peter, he loved the gospel. He was generous in his hospitality. And so maybe this is what he's going up onto the roof to pray about this issue. And as he's praying, he's surrounded by all these pigskins. And he can smell the cooking downstairs. And as he looks out to sea from Joppa, he sees a large sail. And as he's praying, God kind of weaves all these different stimuli in to produce this rather weird vision. And he hears a voice. Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. And you've got to love Peter here. He says, surely not, Lord. What's wrong with that sentence? Surely not, Lord. <laughs> Apparently Maggie Thatcher once said, God introduced a quote from the Bible. She said, God once said, and I think he was right. <laughs> this is just as bad. Surely not, Lord. <laughs> anyway, Peter says it. And he says, surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet 
was taken back to heaven. And then came the coincidence, except as Peter later discovered, it was no coincidence at all. It was this wonderful dovetailing event that the risen Jesus had brought about to bring um, to Peter's attention this whole issue of prejudice. While Peter was still wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. And Cornelius, this Roman centurion, this symbol of Gentile oppression, they're kind of about as unclean as you can get. He was yet a God-fearer. He came and knocked on his door. And in Peter's mind, all the connections started to fire. And the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, you've got to go with this, Peter. Don't hold back. It says, do not hesitate. Go with them, for I have sent them. That word hesitate could equally be translated as discriminate. Do not discriminate, Peter. Peter, don't discriminate them, even though they're Gentiles. And you put it all together, and even a mind as saturated in cultural prejudice as Peter's could not fail to see what God, what our Lord Jesus was teaching him. And he lays out in verse 28, he said to them, you are a Jew, to, uh, sorry, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. Peter was realising through the vision that his religion, for all its orthodoxy, was leading him astray. It led him to believe that God was prejudiced against certain people where God was nothing of the kind. And I think it's important to acknowledge that this is a theological discovery that Christians have had to make again and again. The way Christianity has been used just as Judaism was used in the first century to support all kinds of prejudices is completely shameful. Slavery in the southern states of America, apartheid in South Africa is used to endorse the class um, system in England. We can be so blind to prejudice. And even now, as Christians, we still need Jesus to teach us today. We need the risen Lord Jesus to continue to teach us what he began to teach back then. And you see, this is the application. What do you think today, if you had the same vision as Peter had, What would God have put in your sheet? If Jesus gave you this vision, same one as pizza, not pigs, but just as these food laws were kind of prevented the Jews from sharing their lives with Christian Gentiles, from sharing the gospel with others who weren't Jews, what prejudices prejudices get in the way of you doing the same, both inside and outside the church? What would be in your sheet? Perhaps it's a tandoori chicken because your chief prejudice is against immigrants. Perhaps it's an electric guitar because your chief prejudice is against youth culture. Or a bow tie because your chief prejudice is against posh people. Or a Daily Mail because your chief prejudice is against conservative Middle England. 
or a Zimmer frame because your prejudice is against old people. Or a Burberry cap because your prejudice is against chavs, so-called. Or a pack of condoms because your prejudice is against the sexually promiscuous. The list goes on. And we need Jesus, who is alive and still teaching what he began to teach, to show us these things. And I'm not sure that any of us would have an empty sheet. So, as we pray today, tonight, ask these questions. Who is not in your prayer diary? Who is not among your Facebook friends? Who is not in your diary to see and be with because you've got no time for those kind of people? Who's not there? Who's excluded? And we've got to see that if we're not mixing with people from different cultures, different ways of thinking, if everyone in our friendship groups looks like us and talks like us, then it's a denial of the gospel. The gospel says the things that we have in common, the main thing is our Lord Jesus Christ. And if we're letting something else exclude us from other people, we're saying that's the main thing in my relationships. In Ephesians 2, Paul talks about God breaking down the barrier between us and God, but also about breaking down the barrier between Jew and Gentile. It's all thrown in in the gospel. We need Jesus to teach us. And are we open to the possibility that he is? So we need Jesus to bust in and change us. And you remember what we learned from Peter? That's exactly what our Lord Jesus did. And that's exactly what he, the kind of thing he does today. Breaking into our hearts, into our minds, into situations. And turning things around because our Lord Jesus is alive and at work. So as we finish, let's just pray that like the early church, we will be strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. That we would grow in numbers as we embrace people with the good news of Jesus without exception. And that we would live in the fear of the Lord with an open-ended expectancy about what he's going to do next. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you are living, you are a living God. Thank you that our Lord Jesus is alive in this world, breaking into our lives, breaking into our situations. Thank you, Lord, that there is nothing inevitable about sin, about prejudice, about bad situations, because you are alive. Lord, we pray that we as a church would be characterised by an open-ended expectancy about what you're going to do in and through us and open hearts that are ready to hear what you're teaching us even today. We pray that you would do this by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.